occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out to the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. <clears throat> and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled their partners on the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled the, bo- uh, filled the boat, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boat to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, um, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, things in this chapter <laughs> that so show Jesus better than professionals. He's better than the professional fishermen at showing them where to to uh, cast their nets. He's better than the priests in not only diagnosing but curing leprosy. He's better in, uh, than the teachers of the law who could discuss it, but they couldn't provide forgiveness. Jesus is kind of outclassing every class of people. <coughs> seems to be the idea, uh, kind of the theme. Now, this is one miracle Jesus does in the sea. But there are a lot of sea miracles of Jesus, right? What are some others? Walking on water, Walking on water and... Calming the storm and remember the other one. I'm talking about Jesus. After his resurrection, after his resurrection, casting the nets on the other side. Yes, very similar thing. And remember how many fish they caught that time? 153. Exactly, 153. That's pretty good. That'd be a great Bible trivia question. <laughs> How many fish did they catch in John 21? They caught 153. Uh, I don't know how many they caught here, but it's going to be quite a bit, and we'll see that in a moment. Now, here's a question. How does this story fit in with Matthew and Mark, where Jesus calls the fishermen, and they leave their nets and follow Jesus? Could have happened at the same time. This could be the call of the fishermen. That's my guess. My guess is that we've got a summary in Matthew and Mark, and this is a more developed statement of this in Luke. But that's a question mark. That's something to think about. You know, is whether or not this is the same, or is this before, or is this after, or what? So I think probably it's the same. But that's a debatable point. So Jesus is teaching, and there's the crowd's pressing in on him so much, he's standing by the lake, I think they're about to drown him in the lake. You know, because what are they going to be doing? They're going to be trying to press toward him. You know, come come closer and closer to him, right? And, you know, as they do that, then, you know, it, what's he going to do? So he asked them to let him get in the boat. So the boat becomes kind of like the pulpit, you know, He's able to put out a little ways, and he teaches. And he's actually Simon's boat, Simon's boat. And so he gets done with that, and he gives them a little uh, fishing advice. What does he tell them to do? 
throw out your nets where? In deep water. In the deep water for a catch. <laughs> does that seem like, does that strike you as probably not a reasonable request on Jesus' part? It's in deep water. The fish are liable to be down deep where your nets don't reach. That's exactly right. They typically caught the fish in shallow water. What kind of day is it? This is daytime. They typically caught the fish at night. I've actually read that so that because the fish could see the net in the water in the daytime. I'm not sure that's the case. I read that, but I won't put it. You know. But at any rate, they normally caught them at night. And... Already worked all night, and there were no fish. Yeah, the fish weren't biting. That's really not the term for a net, but I don't know. The fish weren't jumping into the net. I don't know, uh, jumping out of the net. Maybe I don't. It's, it's just not. This is not the time, you know. But besides that, who's Jesus to tell all these guys how to fish? These are not amateur fishermen. I take it this is their job, you know. And what's Jesus? Carpenter. A carpenter turned preacher. <laughs> What does a carpenter turned preacher know about fishing? A lot. <laughs> yeah. Mm, correct. But you wouldn't necessarily expect that. You know, I mean, for many of you, you know, what if I were to talk to you about how to program a computer? You know, how to write a program where I was to tell Caleb how to, how to run cross country, you know, and things like that. You know, sometimes we do those things. You know, we'll try to give advice to somebody in an area we're totally incompetent in. And how does it usually sound? Silly. Yeah, dumb. You know, what are you doing? So, Jesus is actually showing his lordship at Peter's strongest point. You know, uh, he's telling the fishermen where to toss their, toss their nets. I mean, what if you were Peter? I mean, how do you suppose he felt after casting the nets all night and not getting anything? Yeah, he's probably in a foul mood. You know, he doesn't need some layman, layman telling him how to fish. Probably rolling his eyes. Yeah, on the job advice from somebody in a different line of work, and they've been they've been cleaning their nets. You know, watching that they're gonna have to go through that whole process again. You know, it's like going back and painting again. Now you got to clean the brushes all out again. You know, this is just this is really not good. But, look at what Peter says. He, he says, you know, this is ridiculous. But, I will do as you say, or literally, but at your word, we will let down the nets. He is willing to do what Jesus says, even though it's really unreasonable. And Jesus shouldn't know anything about this. That's the attitude we need to have. Completely against hope. Because Jesus said it, he doesn't. If Jesus says it, do it. I don't care whether it makes sense or not. I don't care if it could possibly work or not. If Jesus says that we do it, he's the Messiah. He knows best, always, even about a fisherman. And so, what happens when they do let down their nets? The, the, the nets are breaking, and so what do they do? Get their friends. In the other boat, and what happens? The boats begin to sink. They fill both boats and they start sinking. <laughs> Whoa! This is like the most humongous catch of fish they've ever had. Wow! I mean, what are the chances of that? You know, I mean, it's just like, on the worst night of their fishing lives, the next morning in the deep, 
You know, so totally the wrong place in the wrong time. They let down their nets, and they can't even hold all the fish they catch. Isn't that incredible? Is Jesus teaching them a lesson right here? Of course. What's the lesson? What's one of the lessons? Can trust to the word. That's one. But think about it. What else is he showing them? What's he going to make them? Issues of men. And how's that going to work for them? So they're going to catch. I think so. I think it symbolizes the success of the gospel as well. That just like they caught a bunch of fish, if they'll do what the Lord says, they'll catch a, catch a bunch of men. But boy, poor Peter. You know, I mean, wow. This is just overwhelming, unbelievable. I mean, this is just wow. And how does he feel? I don't know why you're saying poor Peter. Well, I'm saying, how does he feel in this situation? He recognizes his own faults. He just feels so unworthy. It's dawned on him, oh my. I am not worthy to be in the same boat with this man. He says, go away forever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He feels really acutely aware of his own unworthiness. Because Peter knows fishing. He knows what this catch means. And, and, and he just feels like it finally dawns on him, oh wow, I am so unworthy. I am so sinful. You know, have we come to Peter's realization of our own sinfulness? You know, I, I think, I think coming to see Jesus for who he is and then looking at ourselves and realizing, wow, I am not worthy. I think this was a really important realization for Peter, and that it is for us. And he says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You know, in contrast with the people of Nazareth and who wanted to keep Jesus for themselves, Peter's like, I'm not worthy of you. Get away from me. He was just amazed by what had happened. And so were the others in the other boat. And Jesus says, don't fear. From now on, you will be catching men. You know, the kind of, kind of interesting, uh, you know, normally you catch the fish, kill them and eat them. Here we're catching men to rescue them. But, uh, but I think just very, uh, very interesting, very appropriate here. Um, and it says, from now on, you will be catching men. So this is going to kind of change their perspective. From here on out, it's men they're catching. They bring their boats to land, leave everything, and follow him. You know, which is what it, what turning the Lord means. When we become a Christian, we leave everything and follow him. He's, he's, the, he's the master. Peter's the amateur fisherman now. So think about, this story gives you lessons on the four F's. Faith, you know, at your word, I'll let down my nets. Fear, I'm a sinful man, oh Lord. Fishing, from now on you'll be fishing for men. And following. So that's how I preach this message. <laughs> and I have. When I was a kid, I preached this message. You were relatively kid. So Peter would have already known him from healing his mother-in-law. Is that right? Well, not just that. Do you remember when Peter probably first encountered Jesus? 
Yes, Andrew went and found his brother Peter back in John 1 when they were still following John the Baptist and Jesus came along and John said, Behold the Lamb of God. And they heard him preach and wondered where he was staying and probably went and saw the miracle of turning the water to wine in Cana. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he had experience with Jesus. They knew each other. But, and he'd seen him turn the water to wine more than likely. But it's not like the catch of fish for a fisherman. He wasn't a uh, what viticulturalist? Is that uh, something like that? That what's a wine? Isn't a grape person of? Isn't that viticulture? I think it is. I have no right. idea. Yeah. <coughs> All right. Thoughts and comments. Twelve to sixteen. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Okay, so look at what happens here. Uh, This man comes to Jesus. What's his condition? What does Luke say? Covered with leprosy, or full of leprosy. He's he's got a really bad case. How did they see leprosy? Yeah, shunned. Very much so. Would almost remind you, maybe this may be overdrawing it, but it's almost like their version of AIDS or the Ebola virus. You know, ooh, get away. You know, unclean, unclean, you know, and all that. What's the attitude of this uh, leper when he comes to Jesus? He's humble. Very much so. How can you tell that? Says if you're willing. Yeah. He didn't assume anything. Yes, that's right. And the Lord, if you're willing, and he falls on his face. You know, he feels very humbled in the presence of Jesus. There's probably nothing like a good dose of leprosy to make you humbled anyway. And uh, so, you know, and he's, he's desperate. He really wants healed. So he's willing to come and beg it from Jesus. You know, what's our condition? Yeah, worse. We're full of sin, covered with sin. That's a worse situation than leprosy. You know, our condition, our situation is more desperate than his was. Shouldn't we show this kind of humility and beg Jesus for help? There's a lot of times that people are more concerned to solve superficial problems like leprosy than they are the deeper, more serious problems like sin. I think this is a great, you know, passage to make you think about what should our attitude be when we recognize our sinfulness? 
Shouldn't we come to Jesus with this same earnestness and desperation to be cleansed? And, uh, you know, what does Jesus say? Yeah, he's willing. Be cleansed. What does Jesus do? He stretches out his hand and touches him. Whoa. What does that show you about Jesus? He's not scared of leprosy. That's exactly right. Nobody else would have touched a leper. This is an act of compassion, an act of grace, (coughs) a bold act. You know, it shows God's compassion for us, God's desire for closeness to us. I mean, you wouldn't have touched a leper even if you weren't worried about being contagious just because it's so gross. You know... I mean, if somebody has open sores that are pussing out, do you grab them and touch them? Kind of gross. Even if somebody's just bleeding, you know, just grab them and, you know, just run your hand through the blood, you know. So, I mean, this is, this shows you he's willing to make that personal connection with this man. Jesus touches the untouchable. He loves the unlovable. He forgives the unforgivable. And, and think about Jesus reaching on his hand. How many times in the Old Testament do we talk about that hand of God being stretched out to do something? It's a great lesson for us. What's, what's the lesson for us in this? What should we do? Have compassion and reach out and touch them. Reach out and touch the people who seem repulsive to us. You know... People who we are turned off by, you know, disgusted by, we need to reach out to them. You know, I'm not saying that is incom- that that's just means physically touching. Though there are times when physical touching is a good idea. But but I'm saying reaching out and and caring about and having compassion toward the people who are repulsive and disgusting and disfigured. You know, physically or spiritually. You know, we need to have the kind of love for the unlovable that Jesus has for us. Because how are we to Jesus? If you were as holy as Jesus was, and as righteous as Jesus was, how would our sins look to you? And if you were in as perfect an environment as Jesus was, how would our whole life look to you? really disgusting. You know, I'm surprised God doesn't throw up every time he thinks about us. You know, I mean, we've got to be so repulsive. But God doesn't look at us that way. He still has compassion and love. Who are we to let disgust for people's physical or moral situation keep us away from trying to help them when we've received the love and help of Jesus? So I think that's a great lesson for us. I mean, who are the kind of people we would tend to be turned off by and and shy away from? Immoral. Grossly immoral people. Like what? Homosexuals. Homosexuals. Absolutely. You see some gay guy, you know, how do you feel? Or... Druggies, yeah. 
yeah, definitely. What other kinds of things turn us off? Maybe there aren't even moral things. He's not totally. What other kind of categories would we tend to How about prisoners, criminals? You know? How about homeless people? Especially when they smell bad. You know? I mean, just kind of... I have, for sure. What about people who have gross disabilities? You know, things that are just disgusting. You know, we can go on and on. What about people that are just annoying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just think Jesus is a wonderful example. You know, there couldn't be much worse than leprosy. And Jesus reaches out and had his, his hand and touches him, and and and, and he was he had compassion for it. You know, he really you can really see he cares about this man. And what happens when he touches <laughs> the man with the leprosy? What's the, what what adverb does he use? Immediately. Immediately, the leprosy left him. Just like that, it's gone. You know, all the parallels also use the word immediately. You know, and what would that look like? Can you think about what that would have looked like? I mean, I'm assuming you can see the sores and scabs and oozing on his body. So right before your eyes, Jesus touches him, and suddenly his skin transforms into, you know, just pure, you know, baby clean skin. I don't know. Isn't that interesting? Uh, That would have been really uh, an amazing thing to witness, I think. And then what does Jesus tell him to do? Yes, why? And what does that tell you about Jesus? He is honoring the law. The Pharisees' objections to Jesus' practices should be read in this light. Jesus always observed the law and he told people to. You know, he's not going to heal this man and say, just go out and, you know, I'm going to say you're fine. No, you go through the proper procedure outlined in the law, just like Moses commanded you show yourself to the priest, make the offering, and all that. That's that's what he needed to do. He ordered him not to tell anyone, but that didn't work so well. Jesus didn't want publicity. He wanted quietness to be able to pray. Look at verse 16. Um, but the more he tries to get people not to tell, it seems like the more his fame just spreads. And it's, he just got people coming to him, thronging him from everywhere. Would you say he didn't want people to tell because he didn't want them attracted by the healing? Or maybe he didn't want to be seen as a stuntman, and maybe he just couldn't... I mean, it's going to almost be distracting if you've got too many thrill-seekers coming. There's enough people anyway. He did want to reach everyone, but not... But in a calmer atmosphere. That's what I would say. Debbie, you started to say something. Have you ever heard Curtis Pope talk about this? No. What does he say? Oh, my goodness. He names the guy Abdul. Do you remember this? And he goes on, and he talks about the fact that how difficult it would have been to been told not to tell. Because he said, so you you go, you know, into the city, and they say, 
Abdul, what happened to you? You know, and, got well. You know, what's he supposed to say? What happened? Can't tell. You know, it's like how you know hard that would have been because of all that. And you should hear Curtis. I mean, he's yes, he's good at that. He's a very good storyteller with all that. And, that's cool. Yeah, I've not heard him do that. I you know, you don't think about the practicality. Well, yeah, it would, well, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it attract, attracts attention. Not telling would not be that easy. And I think you would think you ought to tell to give glory to the one who healed you. But I think that's where you have to trust what Jesus says, even if it's counterintuitive. Now, how did they get healed in the Old Testament? Well, leprosy meant all kinds of diseases. Skin diseases, scalp diseases, and so forth. It wasn't just the handsome disease we call leprosy. And so some of those things could go into remission. There were times when you could get better from ringworm or eczema or whatever it was. And there was the law that went through the procedure, so evidently it wasn't completely uncommon right. for somebody to be healed of... Yeah, of leprosy, or a garment, or a house to be healed of leprosy, for that matter. <laughs> it's kind of funny, but, you know, I mean, molds and mildews and growths of whatever sort, you know, <laughs> seem to have been under the category of leprosy. That was kind of a catch-all term. I did anything else on all that. 17 to 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Uh, he had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on, uh, bringing, uh, on a bed a man who was paralyzed. Near seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began questioning, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say rise and walk? But, to know that, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, pick up your bed, uh, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what, what he had been laying on and went to glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. So... The big shots uh, are there. Jesus has attracted uh, the notice of the highest level of Judaism. You know, the Pharisees and teachers of the law are there from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And so they're all scrutinizing, they're all verifying, and they're all probably trying to find, catch him in some flaw. And, uh, well, you know, it's, it's, he's, a, he's busy and there's a lot of people around and there's these guys that show up with a paralyzed man on a stretcher. And, of course, they want to see Jesus, because Jesus can heal paralyzed men on stretchers. But they have a real problem with this. What's their problem? There's so many people they can't get close they to him. can't even get near him. That's exactly right. There's often significant obstacles we face when we try to bring our friends to Jesus. You know, the devil's going to try to obstruct that process. And, well, 
since there's no way to get him to Jesus, they turned around and went back home. No? They were persistent. They were determined. Yeah, what did they do? We're in the guy's house. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. What did they do? Yeah. They, uh, They went up on the roof, and evidently they took enough tiles off to get the stretcher down through the roof in front of Jesus. Now, there's a time to wait and see if God will open the door, and there's a time to get inside even if you have to take the roof off. And this is one of those times. Now, think about what that was like for the people inside the house. Yeah. You about the debris falling in and all this, and the guy suddenly getting lowered on top of your head and, you know, whatever. Um... You know, I, 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 I would assume the roof was not intentionally detachable. So uh, probably somebody's going to have to do a lot of roof work. You know, uh, I don't know if insurance will pay for, uh, you know, uh, somebody dismantling a good part of it. Um, but think about it. If you were paralyzed, you know, like really paralyzed, I don't mean for a day. I mean, you can't walk, you you know, you're carried around on a stretcher everywhere. And you knew the guy inside that house will heal you if you can get to him. Would you be okay with taking the roof off to get in there? Yeah. I mean, it's a small price to pay. It's not always easy to come to Jesus. We are not paralyzed physically, but we're in sin spiritually. And Satan's going to throw up all kinds of roadblocks and obstacles are we desperate enough to get rid of our sins that we'll come to Jesus even if we have to take the roof off to do it? Who gets to Jesus? Who is willing and able to be with Jesus? The people who have the determination to do it, no matter what it takes. I think this is a great lesson, a great illustration for us. Very encouraging to see this. And what does Jesus, though, do when he sees this man and he sees their faith? By the way, faith is not just feeling good about Jesus. Faith is getting the job done and getting him in the presence of Jesus. When Jesus sees that, what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. I only think that's probably what the guy had in mind. (laughs) You know? But Jesus cures his greatest need first, whether the man knew that or not. Of course, when he says that, what do the scribes and Pharisees begin to think? He's blaspheming. Because? He makes himself God. Yeah, only God can forgive forgive sins. Are they right about that? Can only God forgive sins? Yes. Then was Jesus blaspheming? No. How so? He's God. God. Hadn't thought about that possibility, had they? (laughs) But Jesus shows he is, because he knows what they're thinking. (laughs) He says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? And then he says, is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or is it it easier to say, get up and walk? Well, what if I say, I can heal paralyzed people? What are you going to say? Prove it. Prove it. Here's a paralyzed guy. Do your stuff. What if I say I can forgive sins? I can't see it. How am I going to prove it? How are you going to disprove it? 
you know, it's a lot easier to disprove a guy who claims he can heal paralyzed people than a guy who claims he can forgive sins. And so it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. So Jesus does the harder thing, the thing that's visible. He has him get up and walk, and he does. And that proves his ability to do what they could not see. And they are astonished and glorify God, and they say, we've seen remarkable things today. Thoughts and comments? It's interesting, the emphasis of the word immediately. It's been, that's the third time in the last chapter about the emphasis of when he healed somebody that it happened immediately. Yeah, because this wasn't something that over a period of a few months or years, you know, with some physical therapy, he finally got to where he could start walking. <laughs> he jumps up and grabs his stretcher and goes. That's amazing. Doesn't Mark use immediately a whole bunch? He does. Jesus is an immediate man. So he picks up the stretcher that once picked up him. What does it say in 17 that the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healings? Was it not always present? Maybe so, but this shows you that he is doing this in the power of the Lord, and that's how he's able to do this. You know, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm assuming that he doesn't, I don't ever see him not able to do it. Right. But, but it does stress, I mean, think about Acts 10.38. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And the emphasis is he's not doing this in his own human strength. The Holy Spirit's with him, God's with him. And so this is a demonstration of divine power, not Jesus being some amazing man. Other questions or comments? It's also interesting how Jesus gets to the root of the problem, like all the time when they ask questions or even when they're thinking something, that yes. he knows exactly what to say to answer the question they might have in their mind that they may not say, but the, it's just kind of interesting. You ever see Jesus flustered? <laughs> you know, it's like in every situation he has the perfect response. It's amazing, really. I feel like they would have had to calculate this well to get the opening directly over where Jesus was. <laughs> Measurements. Yeah, and I don't know if they knew exactly where Jesus was. Right. So I don't know how they worked that out. That's, they did. They did. It worked. I always envisioned it as a dirt roof and we had to dig a hole, not tiles. Well, this one says tiles. <laughs> I still think there was some dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> they were dirty tiles. <laughs> 27 to 32. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their, and, the, and their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. 
Okay, so Jesus finds this tax collector Levi and tells him to follow him. So we've gone from the physically handicapped to the social outcast. And, um, you know, the whole idea of their, you know, taxes, the tax collectors probably collecting tariffs on tax, on, on goods being transported. And the Romans would basically let out bids for collecting taxes in an area. And then your profit was that whatever you collected more than what you had to pay for the right to do it. So tax collectors were not popular. They were generally uh, unethical. And they were collecting for Rome. And what does Levi do when Jesus says, follow me? Gets up and leaves it and follows him. Yeah. And you might must say, I mean, that may be harder than even the fishermen leaving their nets. Because who wants to hire an ex-tax collector? <laughs> you know, and he walked off the job before, so I don't know if, you know, whoever he's been, it's been sublet to is going to want him anymore. Uh, so, that was a lot of commitment on his part. But a converted person doesn't want to go to heaven by himself. So what's the next thing Levi does? Yeah, has a big reception, a conversion party, and invites Jesus and the disciples and his old friends. And they're a sorry lot, you know, tax collectors and sinners. That's pretty much who he's been around. And so they're eating with Jesus. And of course, what do the Pharisees grumble about? Yeah, ooh. You know, he's associating with tax collectors and sinners. Well, they wouldn't have done that. You know, um, they were too good for them. You know, they were righteous. They didn't want to be around this kind of person, certainly not to socialize with them. How does Jesus answer? Those who are well don't need the doctor, but those who are sick do. I mean, what is it? What would you think about a doctor that refused to treat sick people? <laughs> you got a problem there, right? This would have special significance for Luke, who was a medical man himself. You know, he's he's a doctor, and well, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense to not be willing to be around sick people. Does it make sense to be Jesus and not be willing to help the sinners? You know, that's what he came for. Jesus was concerned about recovery, not quarantine. His followers were the undesirables from the fringes of society. I mean, you think about it. Who has been receiving the benefits of Jesus in the stories we've talked about tonight? Demon-possessed, sick, fisherman, leper, paralyzed person, tax collector. (laughs) He's been helping the losers. In the low life. Now, you know, he calls them to repentance. He doesn't leave them in their sin. But but Jesus is here for the people who are sinners and we need help. That's what his whole purpose was. So for Jesus to be too good to hang out with them and eat with them and try to help them, how is that going to help? We're worried about a reputation. Well, if I ever get seen with this person, what are people going to think? Well, what did they think about Jesus? They didn't think well of him and they probably won't think well of you. And who cares? Jesus wasn't trying to be popular. Um, isn't that funny though when he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance? Jesus hadn't come to call the righteous. 
So who are the righteous? Yeah. Nobody really, right? But the hardest ones to win are the ones who think they're righteous. Truth is, everybody's sick, but if you don't know you are, you're not going to go to the doctor. And these Pharisees who thought they were righteous are the hardest ones for Jesus to win. That's exactly right. They don't see themselves as needing Jesus and needing forgiveness. Comments and questions on all that? All right, well, that's a pretty good chunk for tonight, so we can stop there and uh, work on this some more next week, Lord willing.